0: The Joyce Kaufman podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So when I have to listen to all the dribble about how everybody should feel so terribly bad for the poor Palestinians who are being forced further south and now the Israelis are attacking and they're going to flood the tunnels and uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, then I see a release, a PR release from the Hamas leader, Mashal, who says there is no people that is liberated without sacrifices. (laughs) He promised a repeat of October 7th massacre a second, third and fourth time. So, Really, is the world supposed to be surprised that Hamas is hiding behind civilians and causing many, many innocent Palestinians to die in Gaza? That's their strategy. They announced it at the beginning of the war. I mean, Ghazi Hamad, who is the Hamas political bureau member, said that they would do this two, three, four times. He doesn't care how many Palestinians die because he would be proud to sacrifice martyrs. We need to educate Israel, he said, and we will educate it a second and a third time. The Alaxa flood won't be the w- only time. No, it will be a second time, a third and a fourth, because we have the will, the decision, and the capabilities to fight. We will pay a price. Indeed, we are prepared. Allow me to tell you clearly, we are called the people of martyrs, and we are proud to sacrifice martyrs. It was decades ago that the then Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir, said the war cannot end until they love their children more than they hate us. And so far, that ain't happened. There was another senior Hamas official, this Khaled Mashal, um, just he, he's not afraid to sacrifice thousands if not millions of Palestinians for, quote, the liberation. And he literally called the potentially dead women and children martyrs and compared them to the martyrs who died in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Russia during their liberation wars. He doesn't care about how many dead Palestinians there are. But I'm supposed to care. You're supposed to care. The Democrat Party cares. The United Nations cares. They don't care how many women and children were raped and murdered because they were Jews. No big deal. And they don't even care about the Palestinians. How about that? And they're saying it right out loud, and still, and still, people are supporting this cause. I don't know what kind of cause it is, but I don't want to be any part of it. And now you got all the uh, rocket launchings taking place from Lebanon into Israel. You have shootings from Lebanon uh, across the border, and I I haven't heard much about a peace, uh, you know, ceasefire and a prisoner exchange anymore. And I'll tell you one of the reasons. I don't know how many survivors there still are. I don't think anybody does, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't count on any men ever being released. I just wouldn't. I don't know how many more women and children will be released. Who kidnaps infants? Every time I think about that, what kind of lack of humanity must you possess to grab an infant out of a crib and, and either kill it, burn it, or take it into some tunnel. No humanity. you have zero humanity. I don't want to hear it anymore. Anybody who wants to tell me, you know, well they're losing capital and, and they better be careful because the world will turn against them. The world has always turned against the Jews. The world will always turn against the Jews. That's the Jews' reality. If they want to survive, they're going to have to finish this once and for all. And even then, survival will be a daily daily battle when you got one side that's proud to sacrifice innocence you have a very slim chance of being able to overcome that kind of enemy you really do so today of course once again we had uh, president trump in a courthouse it's getting kind of boring but you know uh it is what it is it is where we are in this country in this pathetic story he did speak there's also you know lots of talk about the debate that took place last night the debate that uh, as far as i can see from the numbers nobody's watching these debates i'm sorry you know the only people watching the debates are the commentators yeah Look, I have nothing against Megyn Kelly, really. I would have thought for a moment. I thought I'd like to watch a debate that she moderates. After all, she was one of the most controversial moderators back in twenty sixteen. It might be cool to see what she has to say. But then I opted for sanity and went to the movies instead. Yeah, you know, I, I saw a crazy movie. I, I um I don't even know what it was about really. It was just a kind of like a haunted comedy, dark. I don't know. Tina Fey. Uh, I don't recommend it. I don't even know what it's called. Something like the Haunted Venice or something. Not recommending it, not in the least. Um, but I, I, I just couldn't watch this debate. I don't care. These are the, the the ones who aren't going to get the nomination. These are the ones who had a small shot at one point of maybe getting the nomination, but now have zero shot. Donald Trump is ahead by like 30, 40, 50 points in every single instance. You know, if I heard one more piece and say, oh, Nikki Haley really performed, she outperformed, oh, Ron DeSantis learned a lot from his debate with Governor Newsom, oh, he was a much better performance for Ron DeSantis, really? So how come they're still in the teens and Donald Trump's in the 40s and 50s? Because Donald Trump is going to get the nomination. That's why. There is no passion behind Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis except from Trump haters. And guess what? All those Trump haters, the one thing you can be sure of, they're voting for Donald Trump when he gets the nomination. End of story. They've told me as much. They have all said to me, well, look, if he gets a nomination, of course I'm voting for him. So then why you put up all this uh, stinking fuss? Because I don't think you learn anything from these debates, do you? Other than, you know, who who has a terrible personality, they all do. Really, when you think about it, Chris Christie, terrible personality. Vivek Ramaswamy, a boastful guy with uh, really, you know, his street cred is negligible. He's a successful entrepreneurial kind of guy. Great, you know, start a company. Okay, we like you. Uh, clap, clap, clap. You know, maybe you want to run for uh, Congress. I don't know. Maybe you should just start another company. How about that? That's what you're good at. But awful personality. Ron DeSantis? Look, he, he at least is a very competent leader and was a very competent governor, is a very competent governor. But personality? Zip. Just zip. That's all. I'm not, you know, that's not news to anybody. He, he lacks personality. And so he's certainly not going to get the nomination. I don't care how many people wish that he was. I don't care how many people think that Nikki Haley is the best person to take into a general election. I mean, I think I've heard that 150 times. Oh, she's the only one who can can beat Joe Biden. Mm, You got to get the nomination first. And that ain't happening. So why are we spending so much time just... Talking about it, totally frustrating to me. I don't have the time to waste. I don't think any of us have time to waste. Not on, you know, a, a seemingly irrelevant debate. And then today, oh, this was the new thing today, right? This is crazy, right? I'm listening to all these people online and all these little snippets and writing all these columns. You, know, it, it really is it's not laughable anymore because it's so pathetic, but I'm listening to all of them talking about how the bench is so deep that they're trying to convince themselves that when Donald Trump gets the nomination and when Donald Trump wins the presidency, it's okay because in four years, we're going to have like all these great candidates. No, we're not. We're going to have the same candidates. We're going to have, you know, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, That's who we're going to have. I don't see any other brilliant uh, newcomer stars. What, Rick Scott? I mean, come on, guys. The the Republican Party has a personality problem. The only person with a personality is Donald Trump, and most people don't like his personality. I happen to like it. But today, of course, uh, Donald Trump was in court, as usual, and he did speak at the courthouse, and I'm always fascinated because you gotta have, you know, you gotta be a bold person to walk out of a courtroom and make a statement knowing that everybody's gunning for you. And if you make the wrong statement, it could very well end up with a fine or even worse than a fine. So, you know, he gets out, out of the courtroom in New York City, where he is literally defending himself from a $250 million vicious witch hunt which was incited by the seated president who happens to be the leading opposition candidate and he points out to the people, if this is an election interference, plain and simple, then what is it? And if it is, and it is, this is a very sad day for our country, but he will never surrender and that's why people are going to support him. That's all. And and I certainly am. And I know plenty of others. I know people who weren't supporting him two months ago who are supporting him now. So none of this has worked to the advantage of the naysayers and the never-Trumpers. Why not just give it up? All right. Don't forget to download the app, the 850wftl.com app. That way you can participate in all these cool contests. There's one special contest for a Burger King $50 gift card, but you have to have the app. You got to, um, that one, you have to be on the app. There's some other general contests that you can always um, access through the website, 850wftl.com. You can listen to the show and to the podcast and all the rest of that from that. So, you know, just do what you got to do. And what you got to do is listen to all the shows as often as you can. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. So no matter how many times you convince yourself that you're gonna pay less attention to all of those voices that are out there, and they're just they're so consistent and repetitive that you really don't need to listen all that much. So I'm watching as these court cases are unfolding, and I see that Donald Trump's election possibilities are very good in spite of everything that they're doing. Now, he's got a new appeal, which I think is pretty interesting. It's a uh, immunity ruling on the January 6th case. And of course, the first and most important thing that this does is it delays the actual courtroom drama. He filed a notice today saying that he's going to appeal the, the judge in the District of Columbia's ruling that he was not immune from being charged for, with federal crimes for what they called were his efforts to undo the outcome of the 2020 election, either by his former role as president or, uh, or anything else because the Constitution has very deliberate instructions about what are impeachable offenses and how an impeachment is to take place. So it's a kind of minor procedural step, but what it does is it sets in motion what has to be one of the most potentially consequential parts of this saga, this Trump's legal saga, as the first former president to be charged with crimes. How and when the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court handle his appeal could have a huge impact on whether Donald Trump, who is again running for president, goes on trial before voters go to the polls in 2024 or ever. His legal team says the charges that he conspired to obstruct Joe Biden's victory should be thrown out for two reasons. First, his lawyers say that he had presidential immunity. Second, they argue that charging him with trying to block the election results actually violates the legal principle of double jeopardy because Donald Trump was already acquitted at his congressional impeachment for his conduct that, le- that they claim led up to the riot on January 6th, which wasn't a riot at all. So this is very, very important. And it's going to get minimized by most of the media. They don't want to talk about this. This is good for Trump. Therefore, it's bad for everybody else, right? Uh, Tanya Chutkin, who is the judge, the U.S. district judge, issued a 48-page opinion last week, rejecting all the claims and another one, a different challenge that said the indictment should have never been filed Because what it does is try to criminalize a constitutionally protected right to speech and advocacy as a political candidate. And since a grand jury uh, voted to bring criminal charges this summer, prosecutors have sought to try him as quickly as possible. And his lawyers have insisted you can't do that. My client needs and deserves time, both as a defendant, so he can review the evidence, and as a former president trying to win an election. He's trying to win back the White House. So the appeals courts don't really consider very, you know, a lot of legal issues before a criminal case goes to trial and before a verdict is reached, but the questions of immunity and double jeopardy are the exceptions, and he slammed them with both. His attorney slammed them with both because if the defendant is right that they can't be charged, then the courts have always upheld that they should not be forced to go through a trial at all. And since the Supreme Court has never dealt with uh, some of the legal questions that are here uh, in, in actually at issue in Trump's claims, particularly whether or not a president is immune from indictment and criminal prosecution for actions that were undertaken while he was still in office, even after he has left office, A lot of lawyers say they believe the courts are gonna have to wrestle with those aspects of this case. So the key question, according to all the legal experts that I've been reading, is how long will the higher courts consider that question? Because he's scheduled to go on trial in DC starting March 4th, and the potential jurors uh, in the nation's capital have already received notices that they are being considered for a three-month trial to start on that date. So that would be the first of four criminal trials that he could face, including a federal case involving classified documents that's taken place here in Southern Florida. So you have a state-level election obstruction case in Georgia, a state-level business fraud case in New York, and now that he has filed his notice of appeal on this Chutkin immunity ruling, the case cannot proceed to trial while the appeals court takes up his claims. That's just... The legality of it, which makes the question of timing especially critical, because you got these other trials that are hanging over his head, and you have a campaign season that's about to start full swing. You know, we've got caucuses and and primaries, uh, you know, taking place. Some veteran trial lawyers that I was reading this week, the weekend actually, I read them over the weekend said that if the appeals court rules against Trump and returns the case to Judge Chutkin, it could take weeks to complete preparations for trial. And if that's true, if you are looking at it based on that calculus, well, then the three-judge panel that hears the appeal first would have to rule on it after the new year for a trial to be completed before the nominating conventions next summer. Because Trump is expected, if he loses, to appeal to the full appeals court or to the Supreme Court, in which case he seeks an injunction to stop the trial case from going forward while his arguments are again being considered. So any Supreme Court appeal comes with its own math. Four of nine justices must agree to consider a case, but five are needed to issue an injunction or a ruling. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and experts are saying there are so many variables on how the courts could consider the issues that are involved in this appeal that they can't even, they can't make any predictions. How long is this all gonna take? It's like, how did somebody describe it? I was listening to somebody on, um, uh, he was a former House counsel, um, a general counsel, and he said, um, that this is the first time we've ever been in this, I think he referred to it as a procedural no man's land, which is a great way to describe it. You know, I think he's the guy who is now representing Peter Navarro, if memory serves me correct. He has something to do with Peter Navarro or Dan Scavino, one of them. Anyway, his law partner is representing uh, Waltine Nauda, the the co-defendant in the documents case down here in Florida, and apparently, he's a guy who's handled immunity issues in Washington for decades. And He put the chances of Trump's trial occurring by March 4th at 50-50 or less, given the appellate process. So it's December right now, and unless there's expedited consideration, how, you, how could you possibly think that they could wade through all these novel issues that they've never had to deal with before in three months. It ain't happening. One of the factors is, is which three appellate judges end up hearing the case? Because judges can agree on how quickly they want to move forward, and panels can issue decisions in under two months. But in other cases, it could take more than a year. So... Yeah, you know, it's it's this is it's a real learning experience. That's all I can say. Particularly for people like me who thought they knew it all. You know, I thought I pretty much understood how this all works, um, and now I'm seeing. You know, the Supreme Court ruled in a case that involved uh, Richard Nixon, which is what I've been using as my measuring stick, and said that. Um, Presidents were immune from lawsuits over actions that fell within what they called the outer perimeter of their official duties. But the high court has never addressed, you know, wh- where does immunity begin and end for a president when they're under a criminal indictment? You know, so a, a, a precedent that was set during Watergate, <laughs> you know, it took them two months in 1974 to decide that uh, US District Judge John Sirica's decision that they could turn the tapes over in a criminal trial, you know, that was a much smaller consideration. I mean, they were looking at a, a limited question, much smaller than what the Trump appeal is predicated on. But we'll see. I mean, they can duck this as well. The high court could say, no, we're not handling it, as they've done in the past. But I have a feeling that's not what they're gonna do. I could easily see the Supreme Court thinking we don't want to get anywhere near this right now and letting it go to trial but you got to hope his lawyers are you know are, are persevering and will get justice for their client you don't have to like their client to know that justice should be served no matter what you feel about the the person who's on trial that's all because this is this is you're asking you know us to not accept the desire or the will of the people. Because if, if he's prevented from running a campaign, then we don't get to choose the next president. And that is very disturbing, even to people who don't like him. All right, let me take a quick break. You stay right where you are. Uh, my plan is to come right back. So there's some pretty horrible news out there financially. And I I know that people like roll their eyes when I do this, but it's important, especially in an election year, to look at what the average American is going through. And it's really kind of bizarre to try and ignore the fact that first and foremost, the amount of money that the average household has is way down and it just keeps dropping it fell to roughly 151 trillion in the third quarter of 2023 which you know predominantly was because of a drop in the value of stocks um and in the value and then of course there was a rise in the value of property prices but that doesn't equate to money in the hand especially if the prices uh you know can't be realized because people cannot afford mortgage rates although mortgage rates are down but household net worth fell about one percent between july and september and the the fed said that um the balance sheet of most households and most businesses, because that's important, and the value of holdings of real estate are declining much more quickly than, than CNBC or Fox Business or anybody else is talking about. And there's a reason for that. You know, there's a reason, certainly, for this president to not want to talk about this, because it will affect his election, re-election possibilities, but think about just what you know. Okay. Um, we just went through all these strikes in Hollywood. So, a place where there's substantial wealth, Hollywood, has been down. I, I think they said that jobs in Hollywood, and, uh, you know, I may be wrong about this, but I think Derek told me that even after they uh, resolved the strike of actors and writers, in Hollywood, which was months. That stuff went on months. The loss of tens of thousands of jobs in Hollywood this year is actually part of a larger economic contraction. And those gigs are not coming back. How about that? AI is going to be much more used than ever before when it comes to writing for certain. Entertainment, industry, employment in LA peaked in April, and it was at about 142,652, exactly, 142,652 workers were employed by the entertainment industry in April, and then as of October, there were 25,000 less people employed by the industry than there were in April. That's a 17% drop. And that's just one study on the entertainment business. What about all the other businesses? And even if you just stick with the entertainment business, you know, I'm particularly interested in that. I have a kid who works in it and I work in it. But um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that they lost over 45,000 jobs because of those strikes. You know, there were 160,000 people in that actors guild, screen actors guild, and now there aren't, <laughs> you know, employment shrunk, and in th- the strikes over, so it's not strike related. They ratified their deal when I guess it was in the uh, couple of weeks ago that the actors finally did, but nothing's going back to normal anytime soon, and I think that that's something that the media is complicit in hiding from us. Now you look at. Uh, California in general, because remember, we just endured some kind of stupid debate between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis, and by the way, today everybody was saying, oh, Ron learned a lot from his debate with Gavin Newsom. Mm, really? Okay. Anyway, the California's budget deficit is now $68 billion, because they have extremely, uh, unusual shortfalls, low-tax revenues, and they're going to have to cut deeply. If you look at the Legislative analyst Office, which gives you what's considered a nonpartisan kind of look at the economy, said that the $14.3 billion estimate from June is the highest in dollar terms and will upend the whole year, because it's going to force Governor Newsom and and the you know the lawmakers, the legislature in California, to make spending cuts on a scale that nobody has ever faced. You know, and these guys are term limited; I, I they're not running again, so they don't really care what you think about what they're doing or what they have to do. The state budget analysts in California said there's a couple of things you could do. They have some cash reserves. You can do one-time cuts in spending. And you can change some of the ways you fund certain departments like education. Something they've never done before. You know. And you love it when they say things like, well, but they're in a good cash position. How could that be? How could they be down all this money and be in a good cash position? Now, we don't have the same kind of liquidity challenges that we used to have. What does that mean? So it's not a crisis because you still have some reserves, but if you can pour through those reserves and end up still in the red, what's your point? They're forecasting a $4 billion drop in the amount of funding that the state is going to be able to send to schools and community colleges under Proposition 98. So they're going to have to reduce uh, you know, the funding for education, and that includes uh, climate and healthcare care funding is going to have to be reduced. And guess what one of the reasons is? Because they've made those funds available to all the illegal immigrants who are currently living in California. How do you think that's going to play out in the upcoming elections? I'm just asking. I mean, you may live in California and you may be a demented liberal, But at some point, you're going to have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't send my kid to a school that doesn't have desks. You know, all kinds of cuts to schools that are going to affect tax-paying Californians who pay higher taxes than 48 other states. I think only New York pays higher taxes. New York residents pay more in taxes every year than California residents do. And it might be neck and neck by now. So how do you think a Californian, I don't care how liberal you are, I don't care if you're, you know, uh, my daughter, how are you gonna feel when you understand that you're paying over half of your dollars earned, over 50 cents on every buck you earned is going to one uh, form of taxes or another, but your kid is going to a public school where the walls are crumbling and they can't afford to provide whatever, desks, pencils, computers, I think you're probably gonna get pretty frustrated and you're probably gonna consider leaving the state. And that's why, you know, uh, Governor DeSantis had such a field day with Governor Newsom because he said, like, look at the numbers of people leaving your states. Why do you think they're leaving? Not because things are great. They're leaving because things are not great. And they're coming to places like Florida where things may not be great, but they're certainly a lot better right our budget isn't going to they don't have to hit us for more taxes and we already pay less taxes than most states and we have all of the necessary funding even though our education system is crazy but i did have to tell you a good story a happy ending story maybe i'll save it for the next segment but it it's a it's a good it's a good feel good story and I give credit to my husband and some of his friends from our church who went down to the Broward County School Board meeting last night. And so it's about time we had a positive story to tell. And I've got one. So you don't want to touch that dial. Don't forget coming up after me, Eric Erickson, followed by Joe Paggs, and then Lars Larson tomorrow morning. At 6 a.m., Jen and Bill will be back with the South Florida Morning Show to wrap up this week, followed by Brian Kilmeade at 9, Dan Bongino at noon, and me at 3 o'clock. But I still have one segment left today, so don't touch that dial. I'll be right back. Okay, so here is like the uh, feel-good story of the day. Um, Somebody had sent me a kind of a notice on my on a text message saying, Did I know anything about this meeting that was going to be held at the Broward County School Board in which they were considering removing the Bible from all the public school libraries? So when I first saw it, you know, the person who had sent it to me said, Is this possible? I mean, is do you think this is an accurate story? So, of course, I had to dig a little deeper. I don't want to just run with a story. And I did. I dug a little deeper, and I found out that, in fact, there was some ridiculous move uh, movement that wanted to eliminate Bibles from Broward County Public School libraries. And it's one of those stories that, if nobody knows it's taking place, kind of like the uh, Republican... Um, debate last night. If nobody watches it, did it really happen? Anyway, so I thought, well, part of the problem when you go to these school board meetings, and I have been to plenty of them in my life, and I know many of you have been to plenty of them in your life, what you generally see are moms. Moms who are concerned about one thing or another, you know, uh, gender discrediting and Uh, bathrooms for, you know, same-sex bathrooms, all this stuff. You know, moms go and and hold up the bloodstained banner, trying to get the school board to pay attention to them. And for the most part, they uh, listen and then they do whatever they want to do. And so I've always said, when you have men show up at these meetings, it alters the way the school boards behave, just does. You know, look, the world is full of misogyny, whether you Give in to it. I don't give in to it. We fight back, right? But males appearing in defense of Bibles in public schools made a difference last night. And so they ended up voting 9 to 1 in favor of keeping Bibles in public school libraries. But this is just the beginning of a lot of fights that now need to take place here in South Florida. It's our turn to start pushing back on some of this insanity Because if you allow it to go on, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And before you know it, we're the ones who are trying to figure out why our 11-year-old daughter or granddaughter is being asked to share a room with an 11-year-old boy on a field trip. You know, sleep in the same bed. That was the story I told yesterday. And it happens because little by slowly... It's like drip, drip, drip. If you don't fight back, then they just get bolder and bolder and they do more incredibly insane things and then it's too late. Once all these things are in place, there's not much you can do. So I was very pleased that in fact, a little bit of pushback last night resulted in a good vote, 9 to 1. That's a substantial vote. Uh, in favor of keeping Bibles in the school library. Look, nobody's asking them to make the Bible a textbook, although I have no objection to that. I mean, I, I have no objection to people learning about the major religions. I really don't. But let's say you just want to be on the safe side, so you would not encourage a curriculum to be based on biblical texts, Okay but a library is a place where children go to access information which they might not otherwise have presented to them in classrooms, right? They can go to that library and find a book about how maybe they're the wrong gender, maybe they're trapped in the wrong body. That they can find in the library, but God forbid they should be able to find a book that talks about you know Judeo-Christian values, right? No, 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 that can't be tolerated, apparently. Well, last night, A little bit of pushback really went a a long way. And what it tells me is we have to continue to push back. And I'm talking to you dads out there. I'm talking to the men in my audience. It's time for you to get motivated and activated and go to these school board meetings and stand up for what's right for your children. That's all I'm gonna say. So I thank you for your time this time until next time. And my plan is to be back here tomorrow to wrap up this week at three o'clock, if it be his will and he delays his coming remember that what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. God bless you. God bless Israel. And God bless the United States of America. See you tomorrow.